Acts chapter 18. We are in Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. Today we're going to be looking at and answering the question, what does it mean to be a people or the people of God? We, so often I think in, in Christianity we, we so use these terms and we don't ever make distinctions. We don't make clarifications about what does that mean? What does it mean to be the people of God? Is this a, a sense of endearment? Is this a sense of belonging? Is it something more than that? What, what exactly is that? And that's the theme of the text that we we're going to look at today in Acts chapter 18. And as we've seen throughout the entirety of the book of Acts that Luke has been writing, we've seen that the disciples have been sent out by Christ to spread the good news of the gospel into all of the nations to the end of the earth. And we know that this was a command that Christ had given. We knew that this was the mandate that the disciples and the apostles had. But what we have seen that Luke has highlighted as we have been studying this book is that the disciples are, yes, obedient. And the disciples, yes, they do go. But how is their reception as they go? How do people receive the message of the gospel in these different areas? And then also, too, when the gospel is proclaimed, to what effect does that gospel message have on the people? Does everyone who listens immediately turn from their sin, repent, and come to Christ? We've seen that that's not the case. And so as we've looked at this, I always like to put myself in the shoes of the individuals and the characters because these were real people. What do you think their mindset is? They know that they were to go. The Spirit, he said, will give you power, will give you utterance, will help you into nowhere to go. But when you are consistently being rejected, people are running you out, sadly even Paul being stoned nearly to death, that's gotta dampen the individual who is proclaiming the message. And as we have seen throughout the book of Acts, we see a few different categories of individuals who hear this message. We hear and see that some hear the message, they repent of their sin, turn from their wicked ways, believe in the Lord Jesus, are baptized, and then continue on living a life of faithful obedience. That is what we would understand as a true believer. But then we also see throughout the book of Acts that some hear the message, they reject the message, and then they turn to anger and run the disciples out and plot to kill the disciples. The same way in which had happened to Jesus. And then the third category and some hear the message, they receive and welcome that message, they potentially or at least think that they believe, but then ultimately they reject the message and the teachings, there is no fruit evident out of their life, and they go back to their sinful flesh. And an item becomes clear that Luke is continually unpacking through this text, and it's this, is that, that not everyone who hears believes. Not everyone who believes follows, and finally, not everyone who follows has eternal life. And to me, that is the most scary aspect, is that not everyone who follows, who even calls upon the name of the Lord, but it's not a true calling, it's not a true repentance, it's not a true belief. And Jesus made this extremely clear during his earthly ministry, as he says in John chapter five, verse 24, and this is the differentiation between those who truly repent and believe and follow in obedience and those who hear, believe, but then ultimately live still, completely living an unchanged life. It says this in John chapter five, verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And then Jesus continues to describe individuals who hear and then believe or has an affinity to, but then ultimately reject what happens to them on the last day. In Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but what? Here's the qualification. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter it. And as I started to study for this passage, the, the thematic element of the people of God, it leaps off of the pages here. 
What was the mindset of the apostles going in? They knew these teachings of Christ. They knew that people would hear. They knew that people would believe. They knew that some people would turn. I mean, we have the parable of the sower and the seeds and there's all of these emphasis. There's the narrow gate and the narrow path. There's the broad gate and the broad path. You can't mix match those. So what does this look like? Who are the people of God? To whom are the apostles supposed to proclaim this? To whom has God called unto salvation? That's not the apostles' job. The apostles' job when they go into these cities is not to scan the audience and say, okay, that group looks like they're worthy. This group looks like they're worthy. Not this middle row. Sorry. You guys, you're the ones that you need to hear this message. That's never the case. It is not up to the apostles to dictate and to determine to whom it will be received. Their only mission is to go and proclaim. To go and proclaim because you do not know who the people of God are. It's not up for us to sit back and to judge and to scrutinize and to figure out, yes, you are or no, you're not. We will judge them by the fruit of their actions, yes. We will know if you are in Christ, if you do the will of the Father, yes. But we cannot sit here on our high horses and assume, well, I am of Christ. I do not think that you are of Christ. Therefore, go and depart from me, you non-believer, the way that I am a believer. And it's never the option of the disciples, and it's not our option for us today to limit to whom we proclaim. Our job, as it is the apostles, as we're gonna look today, we go and we proclaim, and who are the results left to? To Christ. I need no worthy about anything else other than am I proclaiming the true word of God? Am I truly dictating and orating and articulating what does it mean to be a true follower of Christ? We know it is only by hearing the word of God that people will come to know Christ. It is by the sending of the preacher that is giving the word of God that people will have the ability through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to confess their sins, to repent from their sin, and to accept Christ as Lord Supreme Sovereign over their life. But if you think that a Christian can just have a rudimentary, elementary, basic belief of affinity towards Christ and then can continue living their life completely unchanged, completely untransformed, you have not understood the message. And I say this because when we ask the question and we look, who are the people of God? Who are not? And then ultimately the, the question that so many of us struggle with is, how do I know if I am a believer and what should my view of God be? So those are the questions we're gonna be asking today. And those are the questions we are going to answer out of the text. So if you have your Bibles, follow along with me. It'll also be on the screen. Acts chapter 18, verses 1 through 17. After these things, he departed Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila and a native of Pontus and his wife Priscilla, who recently came from Italy because of Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he was staying with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly bearing witness to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus, Justice, a God-fearer whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he stayed there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But while Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat, saying, this man persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a wrongdoing or a vicious crime, O Jews, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you. But if there are questions about words and names and your own law, see to it yourselves. I am not willing to be a judge of these matters. 
And he drove them away from the judgment seat and they all took hold of Sosynthesis, the leader of the synagogue, and began beating him in front of the judgment seat. But Galileo was not concerned about any of these things. Let us pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you for who you are. God, give us ears to ear. God, your word is truth. Speak to us through your word. Illuminate the text to us, God. Remove any obstacles or hindrances or distractions we may have, and God, let us know what you have for us to learn from this text. We ask this in your name, amen. So as you see already, we've got... Paul, who has just left Athens, and Ben spoke about this last week, and now he's arrived at Corinth. So this is the church in Corinth, which we have the letters, 1 and 2 Corinthians, being addressed to this church in Corinth. And if you know anything about the church in Corinth, great beginnings needed quite a bit of correction later on. Now, as we land here in Corinth, Paul is still by himself. He just finishes up his argumentation up on Mars Hill. He moves down now into Athens. And then what immediately we were confronted with? Well, he comes into contact and we get a little background about who the apostle Paul is, where he links up with two Jews, Aquila and Priscilla, because of the same trade that they had. Now, Paul, if you did not know this, was a tent maker. And with a tent maker, this was sewing of the leather hide and everything else. And so Paul got busy doing something with his hands because he had to earn a living to continue being a missionary at this time. So this is why we have this included. Now, why did Aquila and Priscilla land here in Corinth? Well, the text tells us in verse two, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. Now, this is key here because nothing that the writer Luke does is by accident or happenstance. Everything in scripture is profitable to include even what seems like a mundane detail of and Aquila and Priscilla were cast out of Rome because of Claudius. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because according to a Roman historian named, wow, I almost messed up his name with someone else. Suetonius, when Suetonius wrote this, there was a consistent uprising within the city of Rome between the Jews. Why? Because they were consistently fighting back a bit against the Christian growth that was happening at this time to the point where it was causing civil unrest. So because of this basic, uh, not biblical source that we have, we see that the reason why Claudius dispatched and said Jews get out of Rome is because the Jews were problematic in creating issues between the Jewish religion and Christianity, which we see play out actually later on in this text. So the reason why this is included here is that the Jewish community was hostile, as we have already seen this, towards the Christian community. Now we see as we jump down into verse four through five, Paul is very consistently doing what Paul always does. What is it? Verse four. He was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade both Jews and Greeks. So what this is saying to us is unlike in other passages where it was in daily he was going in, according to this, he was going in every Saturday and was receiving and talking with them and explaining to them what and who Jesus Christ is. Well, what was he doing to the rest of the week? Well, the verse three had already answered that. He's working to earn a living. And then on the side, he right here is acting as a bivocational pastor, if you will. He's working and then he's sharing the gospel. He's working and then he's sharing the gospel. But what I love here is seen in verse five. The writer Luke kind of switches and we don't, we haven't really seen this quite yet. This is the first time in which something ignites Paul. What was Paul's disposition in verse four? But think about it, go back. He was in Thessalonica, he get ran out, he goes to Berea, they go there, they get him out. He goes to Athens and he is arguing and he's reasoning with these individuals. Some believed, some didn't, then he goes to Corinth. He has been getting beaten up literally every single time he goes into any city. And he is still a man. And he must have been feeling some, something that is just weighing him down. And I think what is beautiful about this is when you see yourself surrounded by the right people with the right motivations, with the right intentions going the same direction, that does something to the Christian soul that ignites a, a vigor, that ignites energy and passion inside of you. And we see that in verse five. Look at verse five. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, so they took their sweet time coming down here, Paul, what, 
began devoting himself, how? Completely to the word. In what way? Solemnly. How? By bearing witness to the Jews of what? That Jesus is the Christ. So there's a shift here. I don't think Paul has ever been kind of a 50 percenter. Paul is a full send kind of individual with his mission in life in declaring the gospel. So whatever Paul's disposition was in verse four where he was going in, I don't think that this necessarily implies that he backed off of what he was to be doing. I think because he knew that he had to take care of himself for food, for shelter, for clothing, he knew that he needed to do this. But then the second that Silas and Timothy come down, he's like, let's go boys, full percent, because you've got to remember too, Silas and Timothy were still the young men that he was discipling along this process. And so when we get here, I want to highlight a few words. The devoting himself in verse five. How was he devoting himself? I cannot stress this enough about what is it that people of God should be doing based off of the character of the Apostle Paul. He was devoting himself completely to the word. Paul became wholly absorbed in his resolve, in his purpose, in his determination, and in his preaching. Paul is so completely enamored with Christ and his devotion to Christ that all of his attention is occupied with the understanding that I have to intensely preach and proclaim the word of God. Why? Because there are people going to hell. I need to get this message out because this is the only thing that can save them. Doesn't matter how much money you have, how much land you have, none of that matters. You're still going to die. We all know that we're going to die. The only thing that can help you in any way, shape, or form for eternality is Jesus Christ and understanding who he is. So how is he doing this? He's devoting himself completely to the word of God. Now, when we see here, I wanna quickly highlight something that I think we today think being completely devoted to God is an emotional experience. It's not. Being in God's word and studying God's word and dedicating, and as we see here, in in a solemn way, the, the solemn way is conveying deep sincerity. It's not an emotional experience. If you go to the scriptures every day and you read every day and however much time you spend, if you are seeking that for an emotional experience to get goosebumps, you are approaching this with the wrong mindset. Can that happen? Yes, but that should not by any means be my standard norm. Because what has happened today is that we have taken the message of Christ and we have turned it into an emotional decision. We have turned it into really emotionalism. Emotionalism has replaced Christianity of dying to self, repenting and believing in Christ. Now, all that I do is I seek an emotional experience after emotional experience after emotional experience. But what happens when things don't go my way? What happens when I get, get a cancer diagnosis? What happens if I lose my loved one? What happens if I lose my job? What happens with all of these other things if I am thinking that my right standing with God is based off of how I feel I am wrong? Because if you think that your right standing with God is based off of an emotional experience, you will always feel inadequate. You will always feel empty and dry because you do not always receive this emotional high when you're reading God's word. What this is for a true person and a true believer following and pursuing after Christ is that this word permeates every aspect of you where it completely shifts your motivations, it completely shifts your desires, it completely shifts your intentions, how you interact with people, how you view the world, as Trey was saying too, how you view all of the stuff that you have. There is but one purpose for all of this, and it is to give God the glory and praise and adoration, which we're going to be looking at here. And I highlight this because I think so quickly we could see this and be like, okay, so Paul just got that motivational amp, and then he goes in, he's like, watch this, boys, I'm going to impress you. I'm a, I've been practicing. I was in Athens. I was able to mess with the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now watch this. I'm gonna drop some nuggets of knowledge on your brain. That's not what this was. This was a, a way of life. This was not something he turned on and turned off. But I think what we see here is sometimes in our life, it ebbs and flows. We're, we're, we're in and then we kind of slink a bit. No, but I'm still in. But that is the persistence of a person who is in Christ. 
is there's never a devoid, complete walking away from Christ. You're shrinking back a little bit, but you're like, no, I gotta strengthen my resolve, and I get back into scripture, and it's this constant battle that we will continually work through the rest of our lives of being students of the word, of listening to the promptings and the obedience of the Holy Spirit. But I love this section here, because what happens next after verse five? How do the Jews respond to to Paul's passion? How do the Jews respond to this message? Verse six. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads, I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. The word here that we see here, when it says they resisted and blasphemed, the response was of slander. This is what this is meaning. They were reviling, spitting at the message. But really, should Paul be taking that personal? No. He is but the messenger. Ultimately, in rejecting the message of Paul, because it was not Paul's message, who ultimately are they rejecting? God. And so this is important for us to understand because as Ben said last week, our audience should not dictate our ebb and flow and change of doctrine. There is but one Christ, we are to preach but one Christ, one faith, one baptism, one salvation, and that is in Jesus. And I should not, nor do I, should I, was received by the congregation or the audience to whom I am speaking because I am speaking from the word of God. So if you reject this, you're not rejecting me and I should not be taking this personally. You're ultimately rejecting Christ. You're rejecting his word. And so instead of Paul, again, I thought this was the time that I've kind of not had a good... Fine, you don't want to listen? Your blood is on your heads. You've got the information. I've given you the gospel. That's on you. Now, let me hit a caveat with this. This is not for us to go out there and Bible thump people over the head and be like, you're not listening to me? You're damned for hell. (laughs) That is not showing the love of Christ in any stretch of the means. As this was happening here, he realizes... I know when it says, I am clean, it means that he didn't withhold anything from them that was necessary unto salvation. But as we see here that I introduced earlier, not everyone who hears the gospel receives it well, and not everyone who receives it believes. Perfect case in point right here. Now, does Paul get upset and think, fine, I'm done, I'm just gonna hang up my hat, Silas and Timothy, let's go make tents for the rest of the week? No. What does he do? Look at verse seven. He left there and went to a house of a man named Titus, Justice, a God-fearer, whose house was kind of presently cool, next to the synagogue. Imagine that. But then what does he do? Look at this, verse 8. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, what? Believed in the Lord with all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So look at verse 6. Verse 6 A good chunk of people rejected, blasphemed, and reviled Paul. Verse eight, the leader of the synagogue, mind blown here, the leader of the synagogue repented and believed, and not just him, his whole household. See, that's the thing with evangelism. You don't ever know who is going to receive the word well. You don't know who the people of God are. So don't ever think, based off of the way they look, maybe even the way they smell, their background, where they're from, that they're unworthy of hearing the message that God surely couldn't choose them. You have a very poor view and a very high view of self and a low view of God. Because as we see here, many of the Corinthians, when they heard it, were believing. This is active. Were believing and being baptized. And look at verse nine. We're getting into the crux. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you and no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. What I see here is the textual evidence internally here between verses nine and 10 to answer my question earlier of was Paul maybe feeling a little bit down? I think in fact that he was because we don't see any other instance though in which Christ comes down and tells Paul, don't be afraid. 
We have not seen any kind of fear of a disposition in Paul's life up until this time, but then out of nowhere we see, hey, Paul, don't be afraid, meaning that God is the great comforter in all situations, even for those who are going out and doing his work. And again, my mindset is thinking, Paul on the road to Damascus saw the resurrected Christ, was taught by the resurrected Christ, was verbally given and tasked specifically, which was what one of the notes of the apostle was, to go and proclaim this message. Shouldn't that be enough motivation for the rest of your life if Jesus physically came in front of you and said, you are mine, I have chosen you, you will do this, and you would think, yes, that's all that I need. I would never need anything else in the rest of my life. We are still humans. We are still fallible, and we still have those tendencies of doubting but look at what Christ does don't be afraid go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you he's always been there's never been a point in time in which the spirit has left Paul it's just that reminder that promise I am with you and no man will lay a hand on you in order to harm you and here's where we're going to camp out for a bit for I have many people in this city. So why is it that Paul is there? It's not to do Paul's action, it's to do the will of the Father. Through the actions of the Son, through the convictions and the promptings of the Holy Spirit, is God has people in this city, but Paul, you don't know who they are. You think that what you've seen here is it? No. I have many people in this city. And I think we see several key aspects here that help us out too is that God is not removed from our universe. God has not removed himself from interacting with us. God actively directs us. The problem is is that so often we suppress that and we only want to do what we want to do, but Paul is listening to this and he goes. And also Paul is not picking and choosing where he desires to go as we have seen very clearly. The spirit forbid him from teaching almost all through the entire country of Turkey. Why? Because God wanted to move him into Europe, into Macedonia. If Paul had his way, he probably would be popping all over the place. But God so often does in directing us, he does things to us that from our perspective seems hindrance. When Paul is put into house arrest and he is put in prison, that's when he writes. So God knew how Paul was wired because God created Paul. He needed to say, Paul, you need a chill. So guess what? I'm gonna lock you down and you're still gonna do my will and you're still gonna do my work and you're still gonna be beneficial well past your own lifespan. And he gives Paul this promise to keep going. Now, Paul even reminds this to the church as he writes back to the church in Corinth. Look in your Bibles with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 2 through 5. Because again, this is going to help bring up even more clarification as to why did Luke include this detail. Why in verse 4, we see a comparison in verse 5 when Silas and Timothy come and then he was renewed and he started to devote himself. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2 through 5. And I love this. Starting in verse two. For I am determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. This is one of my most favorite verses. I, in my determination, is to know nothing else except Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. Why? Because that is everything. His life and crucifixion and resurrection is what bought us. That is what gives us purpose, life, fulfillment, sustainment. And he says this to the church in Corinth. But look at this in verse three. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. This is alluding back to what we are reading in Acts chapter 18. So this immediately tells us, yes, in fact, Paul did feel weak. He was in fear with much trembling. But look at how this didn't necessarily affect his evangelism. Verse four, and my word and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. The power of God comes from the word of God. It does not come from man. The power of God comes from hearing and receiving the word of God. It does not come from human institutions. 
God could have used anyone or anything to proclaim the message, but he chose man for us to be the foolishness of speech, the foolishness of our own cognitive faculties to be able to proclaim the word of God, the true word of God. This is all that matters, it's the word of God. Because why? It points to Christ, it elevates Christ, it illuminates Christ, it glorifies Christ, it drives us towards him, That's the purpose of our life. That is what we see. When we see that we are to know nothing except Christ and him crucified, and we see the example of Paul in Acts 18, and we see too in his writing back to the church in Corinth, it's not about me. It's never been about me. Stop thinking about me. Stop acting like you think you know me because as he goes on later, you think that you're of Apollos. You think that you're of Paul. I'm glad that I don't think I baptized any of you fools because you're getting it wrong. Stop convoluting and diluting the word of God with your own thoughts, with your own opinions and your own desires. Keep the word of God pure. Flip now back to Acts chapter 18, verse 10. For I have many people in this city. I want to answer this question about what are the people? What people? How many? Who are they? And what does it mean to be his people? In Acts chapter 15, I'll be giving these references out. If you look on the back of your bulletin, I've got them all laid out there. We're going to be going back and forth all throughout Scripture. So if you haven't been flipping around in your Bibles, if you've got pages stuck together, now's the time to unstick them. Acts chapter 15, verse 14. As we think and we see, what are the people of God? First thing, Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles what? A people for his own name. So the first thing we see is who are the people of God? They are people that God has chosen. How? For his own name. Second thing we're going to look at is flip to Romans chapter 9. We're going to look at Romans chapter 9 verse 25. Romans chapter 9 verse 25. As he also says in Hosea, this is a quote from Hosea chapter 2 verse 23. I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who was not beloved, beloved. Now flip to Hosea chapter 2 verse 23. I will read it for you and I will sow her for myself in the land. See, this is, this is God, Yahweh speaking. I will sow myself for her in the land and I will also have compassion on her who had not obtained compassion. And I will say to those who are not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. This is being spoken in the Old Testament when we only had the Israelites that were of the people of God. But did God choose other individuals to be included into this as well. Yes, it's very clear. We have seen that with Rahab. If you've been here on our Wednesday nights, we have seen that with Melchizedek. Let me say, he was a real person. He was a real priest and a king chosen by Yahweh. We don't know a lot about him other than he's not the point. The point of Melchizedek that we see in Hebrews, that we also see in Genesis, is that he was a foreshadowing of a type of Christ that was yet to come that would be the ultimate priest, the ultimate king for all eternity. That is the point. And what I love about this, the people of God, as we see in Romans 9, we are the beloved ones. Two, in Hosea, God calls us his people so we belong to God. And the response of a person who is believing in Christ has but one thing to respond. You are my God. That's it. We have to understand that. God places his people where he wants, how he wants, whenever he wants, and he is ultimately in control of saving them. We get to partner with him in evangelizing and we get to see the fruits of this harvest, but it's ultimately God who is in control. Here's another thing that we've seen from this. God shows compassion on his people. God declares that those are his people. They belong to me. Man, then that logically implies this. If God declares people to be his, is there any room for those people who God is proclaiming to be his for them to say, no, there's not. Why? He's God. Who are we to say to God, hey, Ethan, you're mine. No, I'm not. That's like telling your child, I'm your dad. No, you're not. Uh, Go talk to your mom. (laughs) 
she'll be very clear to tell you, you are ours. I didn't go through the pain labors my wife did, but I can promise you, you didn't pop out of thin air, bucko. So we have but one response. You are my God. Because if we're being honest, when we assess our salvation, none of us were seeking for him. The Bible's very clear about that. No one seeks after me. God pursued us. Why? Because we are his people. Now look at Hebrews chapter four, verse nine. I love this one. And someone brought this up in one of the small groups this morning. And I was floored that they made this connection. Hebrews 4, 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Since we are his people... We have this promise that there is a future eternal rest that we will enter into. That's eternal life. Now in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, we are answering the question, if you've already ADD kicked in, you forgot what we're doing here, we are looking at what does it mean to be a people of God? What does it mean? Are we choosing Are we looking and figuring out, well, you need to hear it, you need to hear it? No, everyone needs to hear it because we have no clue 1 Peter 2, verse 9, looking through verse 10. But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. I I feel like I don't belong in that. I don't deserve any of that. Good, Ethan, because you don't. A people, what? For God's own possession. Why? Why are we God's possession? Why are we people of God? What makes us special? Nothing. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of who? Him, why? Who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For you were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you received mercy. So 1 Peter 2 tells us this. His people are chosen. They're a part of a spiritual family. His people are holy. We were created for God's own possession. He owns us. And his people receive mercy. Mercy through grace. Mercy through salvation. Now let's take this a step further because I think everyone's like, yeah, I can get on board with this. Just wait. There's a paradigm shift here that we're just gonna get slapped in the face with depending on what you believe. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter six. 1 Corinthians chapter six, verses 19 through 20. This is Paul, again, writing to the church in Corinth where we see currently in Acts, he currently is. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you were bought with a price? Therefore, glorify God in your body. So look at verse 19. Your body is what? A sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you. So this is showing the Spirit indwells us. It lives in us. It has taken up residence in us if we have repented from our darkness from our sin and have fully committed our lives and are following and pursuing after Christ. He takes up residence and it's not upon baptism. It is upon immediately that recognition of the faith being regenerated in you. For you going from death to life instantaneously, our justification is given to us and that punctiliar moment, however that is and whenever that is, we don't exactly know it's different for everybody and then immediately now we are ushered into the process of sanctification which is holiness, pursuing after holiness. And look at this. Where did the Spirit come from? You have the Spirit from God. I didn't fabricate the Holy Spirit. I didn't invite the Holy Spirit into my heart. I didn't walk the aisle to receive the Holy Spirit. I didn't get baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. I didn't say some formula thing to receive the Holy Spirit. I repented and I believed and I immediately received. As we saw in Genesis, and it was counted to Abram as righteousness because the faith that Abram had which was not of his own it was given to him from God he responded in obedience and it was counted to him the righteousness of Christ is imputed upon us upon that saving faith because it comes from God now here's a big thing that we're not going to like verse 20 you were bought with a price therefore glorify God in your body our body is not our own you may think my body my choice Incorrect. Incorrect. We are made in the image and likeness of God. We are image bearers of God. Babies are image bearers of God. And if you think that you can make a choice to murder a baby, you are going against an image bearer of God. 
It is not your body. You were made for a purpose. And if you are in God, in Christ, there's but one purpose for you. But for us as Christians, we so often think, and nay, 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 us as American Christians, we believe so much in democracy, so much into capitalism, so much into the yah, yah, yahs, I've got to say in everything, you are your own, you give up what you want to give up, when you want to give up, how you want to give up, and God is something secondary, not primary. And it infuriates me because we must understand that this is a key doctrine of understanding who God is. We are so concerned horizontally with our own lives that we so often fail to look vertically to our God who has bought us, he owns us. Our body belongs to Christ. So what does that mean? You can't go out and live in sexual immorality. You're not gonna go out and get drunk. You're not gonna go out and do anything that is going to pervert the body that God had given you, that God had blessed you with specifically and in so if he had called you into the glorious salvation, the salvation that none of us deserve. We deserve damnation and hell, but God saw fit to give it to us anyway. The body that we have is not our own. Why? We, as the people of God, were bought with a price. Christ paid with his blood. We're about to partake in remembering what God has done for us. It is his blood that he shed on the cross, a one-time sacrifice. It's not ongoing, once and for all. That is why he is the greatest high priest. We do not have to continually offer up sacrifices the way in which the Levitical system had. Christ, but one-time offering for all, offered it for the entirety of time. He does not need to go back and re-go onto the cross again. He is not in heaven pushing back against transubstantiation who think that when you partake of the Lord's cup and you partake of the bread, that that is physically turning into the blood and body of Christ. Nay, nay, nay. If that is the case, then when it says in Hebrews that he is sitting at the right hand of the Father because he has accomplished everything, that is implying that Jesus is still in heaven bleeding out to continually forgive sins as it's going on. That's not the case. It's a one-time sacrificial gift that Christ did on the cross. And we have been purchased with that blood. Well, how do we know? Ethan, how do we know that this is effectual? All right, I don't even know what that word means. All right, effectual, producing the intended results. Christ's death on the cross produced the intended results. What was the intended results of Christ's death on the cross? Salvation, eternal life, eternal rest. It was not the potency of salvation. It was the actuality of salvation. And we have muddied the gospel down so much in our evangelical circles that we think that we have done something to earn it, that we think we somehow deserve it. I'm not a bad person. I've done some bad things. I don't care if you've murdered people or if you've just lied. God looks at sin the same way across the board, but we cannot think a hierarchy of sin. We can't think that this person is worse than me or that that person is better than I am. We are all equally worthless without Christ. We are all totally depraved without Christ. We all desperately need a savior and that is Jesus Christ. And that is why we saw in Acts 18, he devoted himself completely to the word. Why would he do that? So when the pastor or the preacher gets up, they don't need to sit here and plagiarize other individuals to say, well, I think this is, you know, this is what this guy said and this guy said they have spent the time and careful study and examination of the word of God that when I am speaking boldly as I am now and passionately as I am now this is not Ethan's opinion this is truly exegeting and taking out of the text as a, as a towel soaked in water we're squeezing as much as we can and I guarantee you I'm barely tapping the surface of this there's still so much more depth to this, but we are so limited in our finite minds that we must continually be completely devoted to the word of God. We are bought with a price. Now, how do we know, Ethan, that this is effectual? John chapter six. John chapter six, verse 39. And some of these verses find, I find so much solace and rest in these verses. It's the promise that what Christ did produced the intended results. John chapter six, verse 39. Now this is the will of him who sent me. This is Jesus talking. Jesus is saying here, this is the will of him, God, who sent me. 
This is the will of him who sent me, that all that he has given me, what? I will lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. This is implying that there's not one person before Christ comes back the second time to whom God has called into salvation that they will not have the opportunity or chance or receive salvation. This means that they will receive it, but it is our job and our duty to go out there and evangelize to them. We have to get out there. We can't just sit back laissez-faire and, well, they'll come eventually. No. This is an active work that we have to be going out there to help, to spread the gospel. But what I love about this is that God is still going to get his way. Why? Because God has given the son these people and he has said to Jesus, these people to whom I am giving you, you will not lose any of them. They are yours. Now skip down to verse 44. Okay, but what does this look like? You know, how does this work? Verse 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. So that appeal of salvation, that appeal, that, that effectual calling that we have unto salvation, the father who has sent the son draws the people to himself and what will happen? Then we will be raised on the last day. See, when I look back and reflect on my life, and I'm sure everyone in you here who are true believers can effectually think this way as well, you were not really, truly, actively seeking after Christ. And these churches that are seeker-sensitive, I don't know what that is. By seeker-sensitives, are you implying that we, instead of reading the word of God, we don't speak as boldly about what the word of God says? Maybe we just talk about David and Goliath and we use some other things that's not very, you know, controversial about hell and heaven and, you know, we just kind of make it acceptable? Incorrect. You're shrinking from declaring the whole counsel of God. No one seeks after Christ. No one can seek after Christ unless what? The Father draws them. Why does the father draw them? Because the God, God had declared them. The father had promised them to the son. So who are his people? To those to whom the father draws to the son. All right, so what does all this mean? What does this, and how does this relate to Christ telling Paul in Acts 18.10, I have many people in my city. Christ is telling Paul that there are still people in this city to whom God will bring to salvation. He doesn't say, and it's Barnabas, and it's Timothy, and it's this, go down to First Street, all those people. He doesn't say any of that. He's just saying, there are people that I will have, and I will have them. You will go because I want them. Go. This tells us, again, that Christ does not have the potency to save. He has all authority and actuality to save. This is a beautiful doctrine that we must understand. But what does this tell us about God and what does this tell us about his people? We must first begin with an understanding, ladies and gentlemen, on who God is before we can ever begin to make sense in who we are. The biggest issue we face today and one of the top gross-selling books is self-help and self-improvement books. We do not truly know who God is. We make shadows and templates of who we think God is, who we want God to be like, but it's not actually God. We have made a God in our own image. Instead, we must understand how the Bible, in his word, it's God's word, describes who God is. And let me outline this just in, in case you're unsure. How does the Bible describe who God is? We've already looked at these. God has all authority, meaning God is sovereign. He has all power and authority. God can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, to the extent that he wants. God has all authority. What God says will come to pass. He's unchangeable. He's immutable. God is in complete control. God did not wind up the universe, cast it out, and be like, good luck, boys. No, he is in complete control. Nothing surprises God. God is like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't realize that person was going to be the president. No, 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 no. God is in complete control. Nothing surprises God. God is proactively and actively continuing to work. 
God is gracious, God shows mercy, God is love, God is kind, all of these things. But here's where I want us to flip. I think we know if we can agree, yes, we we understand these things about God. But here's where the biggest issue is for American Christians today. What does the Bible tell us about his people? How should we as Christians be viewing ourselves in light of God? We must start with the creator and understanding who God is first and then move down to the creature rather than start backwards and work with the creature and work back to God. And what happens is we read God through our own lens, our own interpretation, our own desires, our own wants, our own likings, and we're like, yeah, this is who God is. You can go around the world and ask people who God is. Well, I think God is like this, or Jesus is like that, and I believe this and that. Here's the Bible. Let's look at what the Bible says. So what does the Bible tell about his people? God knows exactly how many and who his people are and where they are at. So whenever I hear this question, oh, pastor, so you like apologetics. So what about the person on the island who's never heard the gospel? That's a silly argument, but I'll entertain that. According from what I know from scripture, they will be saved. Well, how do you know that? The Bible says, none will depart. If that person is to be saved, guess what? They're gonna be saved. Whether someone bails out of an airplane and opens a parachute and emergency lands on that island and magically shares the gospel with them because God, it's not coincidence, God ordained that. That's God in control. So if you ever hear that question, they're thinking, I just stumped the chump. Like, no, I'm not worried about that because God will save whom he will save. And he has said that they are his people But we as the people need to be going to seek and to save those people to whom God wills us. This isn't this laziness sitting at home thinking, well, someone else will do it. Well, the pastor will do it or the elders will do it or the missionaries will do it. No. COVID has devastated the mission movement. So many missionaries had to come home because they refused to get the vaccine and are now no longer able to go back into missions. So do we need more missionaries? Uh, Yeah, So if you're looking for something to do and you like to travel and you like austere environments, maybe missions is for you. Maybe you need to pray and consider. Maybe God's calling you to missions. God will accomplish his plan despite our best efforts to reject it. God's call to grace is effectual in its effect, meaning it will come to pass. That saving grace will come to pass because it works. It produces the intended results. Let me say this too, before we get up on our high horses, God's people do not deserve salvation. We are not owed it, God owes us nothing, we do not deserve it. However, what we do know is that his people are loved, his people are shown incredible mercy, his people are chosen, his people are owned by God, his people are protected by God, his people have no claim to anything of their own. I love what Trey said earlier in the offertory. Everything that you have and possess is not yours. You are but holding on to this for a time. And my question is, is let's just say you've accumulated the largest amount of money in your life. And you, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about this and Proverbs says this. It's like, I've accumulated all this wealth, but then I leave it to my son and he squanders it. So vanity, it's all vanity. Or I've accumulated all this wealth and then I die and I don't do anything with it. It's vanity, because what can I do? I ain't taking it with me. So what God has given to you, what are you doing with that to give glory back to God? Because you don't own anything of your own. Everything that you have to include your own body is owned by God. Use it to bring God glory. His people are protected by God. You may think, but Ethan, we look through church history and they're martyred. Yes, because God had chosen for them to go through that persecution and to go through that martyrdom. One of my favorite eras of church history that I've just been baked with, and I'm reading a book right now with my family, is through the book and life of Jonathan Edwards. I love the era of the Puritans. When Charles I goes up into Edinburgh in Scotland, if you haven't read these stories, the Covenanters, who are these individuals that refused to compromise on the truths of Scripture, and they covenanted by their own blood thumbprint on a covenant, saying, we will stand by Scripture alone, those people were slaughtered in the streets of Edinburgh where historians say that blood flowed through that city like a river. Can you imagine that? Well, God, why would you do that? Look at the example those individuals set because they knew that their life was not their own, their body was not their own, and if this is in God's will for this to happen, then so be it. And the example that they have set for us today, and we're like, oh, America's such in a bad spot. Oh, borders and this. 
God's in control. Get off your high horse and just trust in God and pray in God. I'm not saying we can't be active in politics. We should be with Christian individuals. But how dare you think that we are somehow God's chosen nation as the country of America? We are not. God rises emperors up. He crushes emperors down. He rises civilizations up. He crushes civilizations down. And far be it from us to think that this is the bleakest time in history. (laughs) Then you know nothing about church history. But we are still protected by God. Even if our body is killed, Jesus talks about this in Luke. Do not fear those who can kill the body, but fear those who cannot just kill the body, but also the soul, and that is Christ. Because we know where our trajectory is. We will enter into that Sabbath rest. His people have no claim to anything of their own. His people, guys, this is the biggest one, that if we walk away with nothing else today, his people, you and I, if we're in Christ, we exist for his glory and for his majestic purpose. Why? Because his people were purchased with his own blood. The final three, his people comprise a spiritual family united together in Christ. There's no races, there's no ethnicities, there's no slave, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's none of that. We are all Together, if we are together in Christ, that goes much deeper than any surface level connectivity we have here on the earth. Christ is this glue that melds us together, that it is only in the unity of Christ that comprises as 1 Peter 2 9. We are a chosen family. We are the church local here, but then there is the church universal of our brothers and sisters around the world that are sharing in that common bond of Christ. Might we have slight theological variances? Of course. I guarantee in this room we have a hundred different variances in theology. But what we do understand is that salvation is by grace alone, in faith alone, through the work of Christ alone. That is what we know and that is what we can agree on. Last two things. His people will live, die, breathe, eat, and drink. What? For God's glory. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. If you're a garbage person, you're taking out garbage, you're thinking, what am I doing? Do it for the glory of God. If you're scrubbing the bottom of boat barnacles and stuff like that, do it for the glory of God. If you're a receptionist, do it for the glory of God. If you're a real estate agent, do it for the glory of God. If you're a lawyer, yes, do it for the glory of God. If you're a mom, do it for the glory of God. If you're a father, for God's glory. Everything you do needs to be done to bring exaltation, rejoicing, and majestic glory to God. Do you view God this way? Is that who God is for you? If that is not how you are living your life, if that is not how you view God, then you have made God in your own image because the God of the Bible has all power and all authority. Everything in this earth is subjected unto him. With a blink of an eye, a wisp of his hand, this entire universe will cease to exist should God will it. So I don't need to worry about climate change. I don't need to worry about aliens. I don't need to worry about any of this other stuff because God is in control. We must live this way, glorify God this way because God is in control. And we must give God glory. And even if you are a person that is bedridden, and you can't get out of bed and you think that your life is over. One of our elders' father is a beautiful testament to this. Faithful man pursuing after Christ his whole life. And even though he can barely turn, he's still glorifying God. As long as there is breath in my lungs, I pray that we can follow that testimony that if we find ourselves paralyzed or debilitated or whatever else, that we can still bring God glory even in the horrific circumstances. We can bring God glory. But we so often get so focused on ourselves, we lose focus of the majesty and glory of God. We must remind ourselves who God is and we must be completely dependent on God. So we must always begin with God then work backwards to ourselves. The world tells us the exact opposite. The world says, look deeper into yourself and you can figure it out for yourself. The culture, news, media, and everything else is continually promoting and encouraging you to dig deeper and you'll find the true meaning of happiness. Here's what we need to remember. I belong to Christ. I was created to glorify him. I was purchased. That finds so much solace in my own soul. So 
as we finish up Acts chapter 18, you're like, Ethan, we've got seven more verses. Don't worry. Get back into verse 10. I have many people. We answered this. So how long did Paul stay there? Verse 11. He stayed there for one year and six months doing what? Teaching the word of God. That is the priority for Christians. If you're his people, you should have a desire to hear the word of God proclaimed. You should have the desire to read the word of God. Verse 12 Here's what's great. When you look at verse 12 down to verse 17, remember what I said in the beginning when Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Why did he expel the Jews from Rome? Because they were continually creating an uproar against the Christians. Do you think that the proconsul in this province knew that? Yeah, because it was issued by the emperor. And so what happened here? God's promise comes to fulfillment when he says, don't worry about anything no harm's going to happen to you because i have many people in the city and then look what happens the jews rose up against paul and paul's like here we go again i'm gonna have to defend myself this man persuades people to worship god contrary to the law paul's about to open his mouth i would love to see his paul's probably like and then leo's like ah. he puts them in their place not because galileo was a righteous person he wasn't a believer but because he was being used by God for God's purpose to protect Paul. And so this happened, and look at what happens with this. The Jews were so outraged, they took the leader of the synagogue and beat him in front of Galileo. You talk about a flip. Instead of beating Paul, who do they beat? Who do they beat? The leader of the synagogue. And no, let me quickly iterate. When you read in 1 Corinthians, this is not the same Sosthenes, wow, Sosthenes as is mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Sosthenes, wow. These Greek names, I tell you what. But what happened? Galileo was not concerned about anything. So what does this mean for us? As we see that God is continually protecting people, we must understand that the deeper we study God, the deeper we know God, the better you will understand who you are. It's not the other way around. It's not starting with yourself. You start with God, you'll know who you are better. Let me say this again too. If you're in Christ, you're one of his people. No matter what you may think or feel, you are not alone because Christ lives in you. The word that we read, the word that we hear, it gives life. We are owned by Christ. There is no place we can go, no mountain too high or valley too deep. And I leave us with this promise in Romans chapter eight, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And we as a people of God, God is for us.